Today's episode is sponsored by Tigo. For most of us, indemnity insurance is one of our biggest costs of practice. But when was the last time you took a look at the coverage and compared your premium with others? Many of us are still with the same insurer we joined in med school or intern year. Thousands of doctors have made the switch to Tigo and benefited from their personalised approach to pricing. You will also get an extra two months free in your first year. If you are new to private practice, you might even qualify for four years of discounted premiums. Tigo offers competitive premiums, quality cover and 24-7 support backed by top medico legal advisors. Get a free quote and discover why thousands of doctors are insured by Tigo by visiting tigo.com.au. Hello listeners and welcome to Deep Breaths, a podcast covering topics related to the Part 2 anaesthetic exam. I'm Dr. Kate McCrossan. And I'm Dr. Kate Steele. And today's episode is Bad Medicine, where we will try to cover almost everything you need to know about anaphylaxis. As always, in this podcast, we represent our own views and not those of our employers or ANSCA. So let's talk anaphylaxis. Why is anaphylaxis important? Do you feel confident that you could manage an anaphylaxis smoothly and competently? And most importantly, where is the anaphylaxis box kept in your hospital? Anaphylaxis is very important as it is one of the complications which we will face as anaesthetists several times during our careers and can have devastating consequences for patients, including death. Kate, have you had many anaphylaxes in your career? Well, I can't believe I'm actually going to admit this, but the only anaphylaxis that I've ever had to manage was in my part two anaesthetic viva. I have actually never had an anaphylaxis in my own clinical practice. And of course, now that I've said that, I'm guaranteed to have one next week. <laughs> Kate, what about you? Have you had to manage anaphylaxis before? I have. I have had one as a registrar. Oh, I was with a consultant at the time um, and I've been to at least five more throughout my relatively short career. One of those patients did pass away. Mm. Probably my most outstanding memory was one that I attended while I was the duty anaesthetist where I currently work. The patient only had a 22-gauge cannula in, which was mm. entirely adequate for the procedure, mm. but otherwise had terrible veins, particularly after having a severe anaphylaxis. Oh and it's the one and only time I put an intraosseous line in. So oh. that was interesting. Oh, really? How was that? Exactly how you do it when you practice it. Oh, so wow. someone, one of the techs came in wielding a drill and it was a battery operated one. And I just found the nice flat part of the proximal tibia. I swabbed it and then I inserted the needle to the bone. <sighs> then I used the drill to drill through the tibial cortex. It gave way. Then I aspirated some bone marrow. Then we hooked up some fluid and used a pressure bag to infuse it. Wow. We gave a couple of litres of crystalloid that way. Um, and in the end, the patient actually had a saphenous venous cut down from oh, the wow. surgeons because that's how bad their cardiovascular collapse was. So, um, and did fine in the end recovered but uh, yeah I must say it's probably the only time I've seen theatre nurses look actually impressed by something I'd done (laughs) (laughs) that is so funny (laughs) I wonder if there are any theatre nurses listening (laughs) look you never know your luck (laughs) but it was kind of you know yeah it was interesting doing something for the first time that you've previously only kind of simulated so yeah yeah yeah. on violet crumble i think from memory oh really yeah i remember learning how to do an io Ah. on on a piece of violet crumble because apparently the feeling accurately Mm. represents what it's like going into pediatric bones i'd probably just eat it first i'm not sure whether i'd make it that far so (laughs) yeah me too 
Okay, so look, let's get to the evidence. Anaphylaxis is one of those great topics that is not only very examinable, but is also not uncommon in our clinical practice. Yeah, so I note that there was a question from a 2018 exam. A 30-year-old woman requires laparoscopic appendicectomy. She reports a severe allergic reaction during a laparoscopy five years ago. Outline your strategy for managing this case, given her history. Yeah, so this is an interesting question because it contains so many things to cover. Mm. But hopefully by the end of this podcast, our listeners will be able to answer this question with confidence. The Royal College of Anaesthetists' sixth national audit project on perioperative anaphylaxis is a fascinating, although lengthy, report and provides a huge amount of insight into the topic. Firstly, let's talk triggers. Now, Kate, what do you think is the number one trigger of anaphylaxis in the perioperative period? Well, when I first started researching this topic, I would have said muscle relaxants, Mm. but I was wrong. It's antibiotics. That's right. So in the NAP6, antibiotics accounted for 46% of all anaphylactic episodes. The incidence of antibiotic-induced anaphylaxis overall was four per 100,000 cases. Now, the vast majority of antibiotic-induced anaphylaxis was caused by tycoplanin and amoxicillin with clavulanic acid together, a whopping 89%. And sadly for some of us, there is no evidence that a test dose reduced the severity. Kate, do you use test doses of your antibiotics? Well, I used to. Um, (laughs) Against all the evidence, obviously, I often do. I suppose I'm eternally hopeful that it will prevent some sort of anaphylactoid reaction one day. But in Mm. fact, reading through the NAP6, there was some evidence that perhaps people had a more severe reaction if you used a test dose. Mm. So there's really no evidence. Um, How about Mm. you? I must admit I don't, but when I give antibiotics, I always make sure that I've established airway control and I actually have a patent working airway before I administer it, so I never give it before induction. But again, I'm wondering whether that's actually good practice. Mm, yeah. yeah. So reading the NAP6 has really made me rethink how we administer antibiotics. In contrast to many series of anaphylaxis, antibiotics are not the neuromuscular blocking agents, as I mentioned before, were the Mm. most common cause of perioperative anaphylaxis. Mm. They also think that the increased use of tycoplanin in the UK patient population analysed in the NAP6 was thought to be related to patient-reported penicillin allergy. Penicillin allergy is the most commonly reported drug allergy in the community with up to 10% of patients saying they're allergic and I would agree with Mm, that in my practice. Yeah, absolutely. The NAP6 authors posit that at least 90% of patients with a so-called penicillin allergy could be delabeled if an adequate description of the allergy could be obtained or the patient was investigated in an allergy clinic. Mm. So interestingly on that point, the hospital that Kate McCrossan works at started an infectious diseases allergy clinic a couple of years ago and out of 120 patients seen in the first two Two years, 92.5% have been successfully delabeled as having a penicillin mm. allergy. That's astounding. Mm. Now, the authors of the NAP6 also say that there is a strong argument to administer antibiotics several minutes before the induction of anesthesia. The benefits include being able to confirm a lack of allergy with the patient immediately before administration. Secondly, that the severity of physiological derangement due to anaphylaxis may be lessened and that the investigation of anaphylaxis is considerably simplified if fewer drugs have been administered. Yeah, it's quite interesting, isn't it, to your Mm. point? I think traditionally we thought 
oh, we'll, we'll give them post-induction because then mm. we won't have the issues with airway swelling. But interestingly, in the NAP6, they actually didn't find a huge amount of airway complications anyway. Mm-hmm. And I think Amy Lawrence in the diabetes episode, and I'm mm. not sure whether it'll end up being before or after this episode, but she actually mentions that she recently found out that mm. uh, the severity of anaphylaxis is less when you're not under general yeah, anesthesia. So, that's so true. I really think this inf- information is going to make me rethink my practice. Absolutely. Um, just remember to give that kefazolin slowly because mm. we all know what happens when you don't. And for mm. our more junior listeners, it can make patients feel very sick mm. if it's given too quickly and can give them a funny taste in their mouth. So, mm. as long as you go mm. slowly, it's well tolerated awake. Mm. So coming in second on the list of causes of anaphylaxis are the neuromuscular blocking agents, which accounted for 33% of all cases. Succimethonium was twice as likely to cause anaphylaxis as any other agent at a rate of 11.1 per 100,000 cases. Mm. Mm. Interestingly, the non-depolarizing neuromuscular blocking agents all had very similar incidences of anaphylaxis, which probably goes against what many of us may believe that, you know, for example, cisatricuria may have a lower rate of allergy. It wasn't borne out, at least in this particular series. Yeah, that's so true. Now, chlorhexidine rounds out the top three causes of anaphylaxis, accounting for 10% of all cases, but a low incidence at 0.78 per 100,000 cases. The diagnosis was often not recognised when chlorhexidine was the triggering agent. Yeah, and I suppose this comes down to the fact that often chlorhexidine anaphylaxis is a little bit more delayed than they sort of give the IV injection and get it Yeah, exactly. Away. Well, it's not intravenous administration and it's often something we forget we even use mm. in truth. So I can understand how that would happen. Yeah. Patient blue dye was an infrequent cause of anaphylaxis in the NAP6, but at a high incidence rate of 14.6 per 100,000, which is higher than succimethonium. Mm. Gelatin-containing fluids caused anaphylaxis at a rate of 6.2 per 100,000, which is the same as rocuronium. Mm. Interestingly, ondansetron caused two cases, and a single case each was caused by propofol, aprotonin, and protamine. So how did anaphylaxis present in the NAP6? Now, hypotension was the presenting feature in 46% of cases and occurred eventually during all cases. Bronchospasm was the presenting feature in 18% of cases. Urticaria or flushing was an uncommon presenting feature. Now, this is interesting because I suppose we always get taught that the classical presentation is a rash. Yeah, I agree. It's interesting. ANSCA's own guidelines still mention skin signs as one of the first stop points, Mm. but skin signs often don't appear at all or won't appear until proper circulation is restored. Mm. Now, the NAP6 emphasises that the perioperative anaphylaxis, as opposed to anaphylaxis occurring in other settings, has several unusual elements. Firstly, the vast majority of triggers are given intravenously, having the potential for the most rapid and severe reactions. Secondly, multiple drugs are given concurrently, which can muddy the waters, so to speak, in terms of the effects on normal physiology. And finally, these events occur in the presence of a highly trained specialist who may be able to identify and manage the anaphylaxis more promptly than in other settings. Yeah, it is interesting. I suppose with the recent reports uh, in our state of anaphylaxis to the AstraZeneca COVID vaccine, Mm. it reminds us that anaphylaxis does indeed occur outside of the theatre bubble. That's so true. So on that term, Kate, who gets anaphylaxis? So interestingly, against maybe traditional teaching of a higher incidence in females, there was no gender disparity noted in the NAP6. What we do know is that those who are older, a higher ASA and more obese are more likely to die from anaphylaxis if they have it. The overall risk of perioperative death from anaphylaxis is 1 in 239,000 general anaesthetics in the NAP6. 
Patients who died from anaphylaxis were more likely to have coronary artery disease and to be taking beta blockers than those who survived. Mm. Interestingly, patients who had a very low blood pressure, for, so under 50 millimetres of mercury, but who did not have a cardiac arrest were managed less well than other patients in terms of the speed of the treatment, administration of adrenaline and CPR when indicated. And the majority of these patients came to harm. Mm, that's terrifying. So, okay, so onto the management of anaphylaxis. This leads very nicely into that topic. Now, this is very well covered by the anaphylaxis cards that are developed jointly by ANSGAR and ANZAG, which is the Australian and New Zealand Anesthetic Allergy Group. And these are available on the websites of both of these organisations. The cards are designed to be kept in a dedicated anaphylaxis box. In the event of an anaphylaxis event, there should be a team with at least three roles, team leader, card reader, and adrenaline preparation. The team leader is usually the most senior anaesthetist and they should refrain from technical tasks. The card reader may be a nurse, an anaesthetist or even a surgeon. It is important that the cards are not paraphrased or skipped through and the adrenaline preparation member is usually a second anaesthetist or an experienced nurse. So the first key point in management is that adrenaline and IV fluids are the mainstay of treatment of anaphylaxis. The second point in immediate management is if the patient has a PEA cardiac arrest, then he must follow the ALS guidelines for non-shockable rhythms. As in any cardiac arrest, do not delay CPR. Now, the great news with the immediate management of anaphylaxis is that we can use an existing mnemonic to remember what we need to do, along with the immediate management card. DR is danger and diagnosis and response to stimulus. So, for example, remove triggers, stop the procedure, use minimal volatile if it's a general anaesthetic. S is send for help and organise the team, which means get the anaphylaxis box, assign a designated leader and scribe and assign a reader of the cards. I can't really emphasise how useful it is to actually read the cards. Mm. I think in the last anaphylaxis I attended, we did use the box and the cards and it's just so helpful to make sure you've covered all your bases. We all think mm. we've got a great working memory, but we really don't. Mm. So. It's amazing what you can forget when you're really task oriented and the, you know, the chips are down and it's an urgent situation. That's so true. Yeah. And, you know, we, we kind of hear the airline industry using checklists and mm. I think there's no reason that we can't do the same thing to mm. make sure we tick all the boxes. Absolutely. So ABC is what you'd expect, but in anaphylaxis particularly, large bore IV access is helpful and two litres of preferably warm crystalloid IV fluid should be given. D is for drugs, and this means adrenaline, titrated to the severity grade of the anaphylaxis. The cards give the doses of adrenaline, and remember that you can always give intramuscular adrenaline. Mm. 500 mics, which is half a mil of 1 in 1,000 adrenaline, every 5 minutes PRN if you don't have IV access. Mm. There are also cards for paediatric anaphylaxis management and for refractory management. In refractory cases, request more help and consider further triggers. Is there any chlorhexidine on the patient, including impregnated central lines? Is there any latex present in the theatre? Consider a transesophageal echo and other diagnoses. There are also suggestions for resistant hypotension, including noradrenaline, vasopressin and glucagon, and for resistant bronchospasm, including inhaled and intravenous salbutamol magnesium, inhalational anaesthetics and ketamine. Once the situation has stabilised, there is also a post-crisis management card to use. Steroids should be considered either dexamethasone or hydrocortisone. Oral antihistamines, but not intravenous or intramuscular, should be also considered. The patient should be investigated, observed and referred for further allergy testing. Triptases should be sent at one hour, four hours and over 24 hours. So, Kate, what's the process for referring for allergy testing at your hospital? Well, we don't actually have any specialists that perform 
allergy testing at our hospital per se. So we have to refer to another specialist within the same health service district, but at a different hospital. And the way that we do that is that we just write a letter. And in that letter, we state exactly why we're referring the patient. So obviously to investigate whether this was an anaphylactic reaction that the patient has experienced. But we also include all of the information that we can about the anaesthetics or Mm. drugs that were given, when they were given, what symptoms we started seeing and when and how long for, the treatments that we administered for these patients, Um, literally every single thing that happens in theatre when you're managing this case. But not only that, we also include a lot of additional information about these patients. So if they've had anything unusual happen in previous anaesthesia, a detailed medical history, surgical history, what they've had in the past and where, so that we can locate different anaesthetic records to sort of compare and contrast what what has happened previously and what happened on this particular instance. Mm. And then, of course, simple things like we always include information on how to get in contact with us after this patient has obviously been seen because it's important for us to close the loop as well. Mm. If a patient comes to a specific hospital within a health district, then odds are if they come for one surgery, they're going to come for more. So Mm. it's important to know what the outcome of this referral is so that we can then make everything safer for them in the future. Mm. How about you? What do you do in your health service? Well, your hospital refers to my hospital, so... (laughs) So that's a pretty easy question to answer. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, so we both refer to the same place, but um, we actually use, and you might have these floating around your department, but since you're so lucky and have never had one, you've never had to use it. <laughs> we um, use the uh, ANZAG referral form. Um, oh, okay. And so it's a, let's have, I'll just actually pull that up. It's a six page referral form that covers everything that you've mm. talked about and all the relevant details that the testing team needs to do. And then I have some colleagues that, do um, anaphylaxis testing, allergy mm. testing. Um, we now have uh, one, you know, one session a week available for that, and patients come in and get skin prick testing. And then mm. it, we should get someone to come in and talk about it because there's yeah, all sorts of nuances should. to it and how to interpret the tests and that sort of thing. So mm. yeah, mm. it's not as easy as you would think. Mm. Mm. Well, look, it's been another big episode on deep breaths today. Now, at the end of every episode, we ask, "What have we learned in anaesthesia this week?" So, Kate, why don't you start? So. I suppose this is tangentially related to anaesthesia. So this year I'm embarking on some further study in healthcare improvement. So this week I delved into the world of complex as opposed to complicated systems and even a bit of chaos theory, which really hurt my brain. This may not exactly be anaesthesia, but it is so interesting to realise that we are only part of a hugely complex system. Mm. And one of the features of a complex system is emergence, where things happen that cannot be predicted by analysing parts of the system individually. So I'm not sure if this is comforting or terrifying, to be honest, (laughs) but hopefully I'll learn a bit more about how to overcome it in the future with the study and how... How about you? Well, so this week I learned something that frankly blew my little lizard brain. And it's something that many people may already be aware of, but I had literally never even thought about this until Monday of this week. So... Obviously, in our practice, we get lots of people coming through that are likely going to be difficult bag mask ventilation with a glorious beard and moustache. And how much of a pain in the tail is it when we're trying Mm. to pre-oxygenate those patients and we're putting tegaderms over there? beard and we're putting lubricant over the masks and it's just it's it's a bit of a pain in the butt and the pre-anesthetic pre-oxygenation frankly it just never seems to work well so what i was taught was to actually remove the mask from the circuit Mm -hmm. and just get the the patient to put 
the circular part of the circuit so that the mask usually attaches to in their mouth and use it like a snorkel. Did you not do this in paediatrics? I never did that really? in paediatrics. Really? Okay, no, I learned that one in paediatrics. Yes. Yeah. So, um, and so the patient literally uses it as a snorkel. Mm. Now you do have to block their noses so they don't entrain air through mm. their nose and sort of reduce the mix, you know, dilute the mixture of oxygen they're getting. But you get the patient to pop this in their mouth. They take a few deep breaths and, hey, presto, they have the most amazing pre-oxygenation and you don't have to fight with a beard. Now, that said, once they're asleep, you still have to have a plan for bag mask ventilating, yes. what is going to be a difficult bag mask ventilation mm. potentially. And that's where a lot of the tegaderms and, mm. you know, oral adjuncts, airway adjuncts and things like that come into practice. But, geez, that makes the pre-oxygenation yeah. process so much easier. There you go. Always learning something. Exactly. Eh? Well, that's all we have time for on today's episode of Deep Breaths. You can find us wherever you find your podcasts. Don't forget to drop us a line at deepbreathspod at gmail.com. We love receiving emails from our listeners with comments and suggestions for future episodes. Thanks for listening and we hope you can join us next time on Deep Breaths.